Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me in the studio today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Bearley. We're also delighted to welcome special guests Alan Hyam, Retirement Director at Fidelity Worldwide Investment and Tim Cockerell, Investment Director at Rowan Dartington, who is on the line. Today we're going to be talking about pensions and why some retirees might be missing out on valuable extra income. We'll also look at the performance of Neil Woodford's new fund on its one-year anniversary and we'll also be giving some tips for investing in bond funds, China and the US. We're now two months into the pension freedoms that allow complete income flexibility in retirement to those aged over 55. And um, we'd like to look at how DIY pension investors have been actually taking their money. Alan, um, Fidelity has been looking at how its customers have been reacting to the new pension freedoms. Um, Are people taking their money out in one go or are you seeing a range of um, of behaviours? Yes, Maura, we are seeing a range of behaviours. I think it's fair to say that just like when Apple launches a new iPhone, there's a queue outside the store on day one. So we had a number of people who'd been waiting since the Chancellor announced it in his budget, but they weren't yet eligible to do so. They were waiting to cash in a small pot, typically. And that sort of queue lasted maybe two days. And it wasn't a huge queue, but it was noticeably higher than normal volumes. After that, what we've seen is people taking their time, actually. We've had lots of questions, people wanting to know about their options, what choices they had, what the pros and cons were. And what we're now starting to see as people make a decision is that most people are staying invested. They're going into drawdown, and that could be drawing down just the tax-free cash element of their pension plan leaving the rest invested to be taken later, or setting up some regular income payments in addition to their tax-free cash as well. So um, really, for a lot of um, investors, that's that's no change. They probably were considering income drawdown, and, and now it's gone to plan. They're just carrying on as normal, and they, they're having to withdraw their money so that it, it lasts over a significant um, period of time in retirement. So... It's, it, it hasn't made a lot of difference for them, has it? Well, perhaps not, yes. I think you're right, Maura. For, you know, for people who perhaps had quite a lot saved and were looking to a substantial investment fund to see them through retirement, perhaps it's just business as normal for them. Uh, what we have seen um, in our workplace pension book, we run a lot of company pension schemes, and there people might have had a final salary pension for a number of years, and then most recently, as many companies have changed to defined contribution pensions, they've got a smaller amount of money, maybe twenty, fifteen thousand pounds saved there. Now, in the past, most people were pretty much steered towards buying an annuity when they wanted to come to take that money. They could take their tax-free cash, a quarter of it typically, but for the rest they bought an annuity. What we're now seeing is very few people with that size of pot in that circumstance choosing to buy an annuity. Okay. Um, Now, I mean, everybody wants in retirement to um, generate as much income as possible. And then I think you've you've discovered that there's um, there's a new uh, way that you, you can generate a bit of extra income. That's by deferring state pension. Now, who who can do this and, and what kind of benefit are we looking at, Alan? Would you mind explaining? Yes. Anybody who's already drawing their state pension can defer taking it or suspend taking it. 
And if you are due to reach your state pension age before the 6th of April 2016, if you choose to delay taking it, then alongside those people already drawing a state pension, you will benefit from extremely generous terms for deferring your state pension. You will get an increase of 10.4% for every year you delay on top of the inflation increases that naturally happen to the state pension. So let me say at the outset, if you're younger, if you're a younger person and you're, you do not reach state pension age until after the 6th of April 2016, then these terms do not apply to you. So it's a bit like the pensioner bonds. Those, remember the pensioner bonds? Mm -hmm. Over a million people bought them, but you had to be over 65. If you were younger, sorry, you couldn't mm -hmm. buy one. It's the same principle. If you reach state pension age before 6th of April 2016, these generous terms apply for you. Obviously, when you do reach state pension age in five, ten years' time, you'll probably still be able to defer taking it, but we know the terms for those people are much less generous. All right. So if, you, if you've already started taking your state pension, um, you're out of the picture on this, are you? Or, no, not at no, all. No, no? You, you, okay. you could suspend taking it. If you're, if you're say, 64 and you, you're a lady of 64 and you drew your state pension two years ago and you think, why didn't anybody tell me about this, you could stop taking it now. And, you know, if you, your state pension is, say, 7000 a year and you were to defer it for a couple of years, perhaps you'd need, say, £14,000 worth of savings to pay you the 7000 a year that you otherwise have got, that would probably generate you an extra income over your lifetime, over and above the 14000 of 18000 So it's a stupendous return. Obviously, if you're unlucky and pass away early, some people will, um, then you won't get that benefit. But for the average person who might reasonably expect to live 24 years after their state pension age, this formula of deferring your state pension for a 10% return should pay handsomely in guaranteed income going up with inflation. So you've got to think about your own um, potential life expectancy um, and how, how fit and healthy you are and what the experience of your family members have been. And do a few calculations, really, to see... How how much? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and really, it's a it, it's a bit of a, a gamble as to whether it will pay off or not. You can't tell that, but it, you know, it might. It, but it looks like it might make sense for a lot of people. It is a bit of a gamble. The odds are heavily in your favour. You'd have, you know, if you're gonna, if you're going to delay one year, you'll get a, 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 instead of getting a hundred now, you'll get a hundred and ten point four. So you'd have to live just over nine years, wouldn't you, to break even? So for most people at, say, age 65, a man at 65, the vast majority of men will live past 75. Um, the life expectancy of somebody at age 65 is probably close to age 90. So it, the odds are heavily in your favour, but there are no guarantees. So it's not suitable for people who are really tight on capital and can't afford to give up the capital. They have no more rainy day money to fall back on. And it's not suitable for people in poor health where the chances of living for that nine and a bit years really isn't that good. And... um. Why do you think um, it's, there's not been a big uptake um, for this? It's, it's not been widely publicised or people just don't, don't realise what a good deal it is? I mean, well, we've done some research on this, actually. We've, we've asked people who've recently reached state pension age and what we found is that the vast majority of people knew that they didn't have to take their state pension. You actually have to claim your state pension. It's a welfare benefit. It's not a pension benefit at all. It is a welfare benefit. You actually formally have to claim it. So people are aware that they could put off claiming it. 
but nobody ever explains the benefits to them. In the terms that we've just talked about, nobody ever says, do you know this is such a fantastic deal? The government has a 60-page booklet, and that might in itself be one reason why nobody knows about it, because who wants to read a 60-page booklet? So when I talk to people and explain this, people's eyes light up and they, they do say, that's brilliant. Why has no one ever told me about this before? Um, and it, it, if you've called up, um, say, the Money Advice Service, do you think they would tell you? you know, I mean, is that the kind of thing that ought to be discussed? Or is it just too, too on the periphery of um, what people need to know? You see, I don't think it, there is that much awareness of this subject. I think people know that you can defer the state pension, and I'm sure the Money Advice Service would explain that option to you. But I think they would probably shy away from expressing a view as to whether it was good or not. They would be very careful just to say, it's an option, you must make your own mind up. And they will direct you to the booklet. And I think that sort of very careful, neutral and safety-first approach isn't going to engage people and isn't going to make people want to look for it. Whereas if you actually point out, look, the headline rate is you get a 10% increase. You'd only have to live nine years for it to, to, to really be worth your while. People start to get a bit more interested when they see a, a few numbers put in front of them. Yeah. I think the government could perhaps make it, the communication a little bit simpler, actually. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, thanks, Alan, for that. Um, now, also on the subject of um, investing for income, um, many people who are nearing retirement are going to be want to maybe be a bit more cautious with their actual investments, and that usually means introducing more bond funds. But it's a scary time to be invested in bonds, um, with yields spiking in recent months. So we've been looking this week at whether absolute return bond funds could be the answer. Um, Kate Bealey is our personal finance writer and she's been looking at this sector. Kate, why should investors consider absolute return bond funds? Um, well, the idea behind these is that they are generating kind of a positive return year on year throughout market cycles. So they're called absolute return as opposed to relative return funds, which, which track a benchmark because these will set a specific return target over a specific time frame and say they're going to meet that regardless of whether markets are rising or falling. So the idea is it's a kind of protection element of your portfolio. And actually, a lot of people say that these aren't so much bond alternatives as just part of a specific area of your portfolio just for protecting capital. Um, So the idea, yes, capital preservation and diversification and holding on to your capital in a downturn. How, how do they actually um, generate absolute returns? That means returns in good and bad conditions. Yeah, um, they do it by um, a series of kind of hedging and they use a lot of derivatives which other managers couldn't use. So short and long trades um, on things like um, bond duration. Um, so they can kind of make bets basically in, in the market and always deliver returns well that's that's the idea yeah. anyway well, the, the question is have yeah. they have they mm. delivered ha, have have they worked as a strategy you know what, what's the verdict there well it's it's a tricky one because i mean they they haven't been around for that long they haven't been around as long as um equity absolute return funds um so they haven't been tested in kind of every market condition and a lot of people are a bit negative on them actually and say they haven't really proved um, prove their worth. They did all, or most of them seem to fall in 2011, and a lot haven't delivered positive returns every single year. Also, important to say, if you're looking for income, you wouldn't want one of these. I mean, they don't target yield. That's kind of not the point. 
and their returns are, you know, they are small, but they're not meant to shoot the lights out. So basically some of them haven't delivered positive returns every year. They don't deliver income and they haven't been fully tested. So actually there's quite a lot of scepticism around them, I think. Um, Tim Tim Cockerell, what's your view of absolute bond funds? Um, do you... Do you advise your investors your clients to get exposure using them or do you use some other way of getting exposure to bonds um i'm very much in agreement with kate actually um so no we we aren't using them at the moment i mean in theory they have a lot going for them you know anything that can make you money irrespective of the direction of the market must be uh, attractive However, reality, uh, as Kate was pointing out, is in the figures and what you get. And the returns haven't been that great. Um, I was looking at some numbers yesterday, um, very short-term numbers, actually, how they've done in the last three months. And I picked that period because um, it's been a a time when uh, bond markets have been a bit more volatile. Gilt yields have risen quite sharply. We've had QE in Europe, which has affected the bond market. So it's a time when you would expect this type of fund to, if you like, be in its element and actually produce some good returns. After all, you know, things are going up, things are going down. That's how they make their money. And they've lots of different ways of doing that. But the numbers aren't at all encouraging, actually. So um, I I think investors have to be cautious and have to know uh, very you know, very carefully, clearly, what they're getting into when they buy these. So, I mean, you seem to be you seem to be writing up them off as a bit as a sector. How would you advise investors to get their bond exposure? Well, it's. I mean, as again was pointed out, the trouble is we've had a rally in the bond markets for many years now, and only last year uh, the uh, UK government gilt. Uh, index returned something like 14%, which was a fantastic return for gilt. And everyone's afraid that when interest rates start to rise in the UK, and probably before that in the US, then bond yields will rise, which means prices will fall. So it's quite hard at this point to find a lot of value there. But um, one of the routes we use is strategic bonds. Now, they're bonds which are long only, but they've got a lot of flexibility. So you're asking the managers there to pick out the trades that they think offer the very best value. And it's not necessarily going to guarantee you um, uh, or guarantee that uh, capital values won't fall, but it will give you a good chance of protecting your capital in, in bond exposure. Um, And also it would generate an income. And I think for a lot of people, a lot of investors, that income is important. And again, as Kate was saying, with the absolute bond funds, you really don't get an income. Whereas you can pick up 4, 5, 6% um, from a more conventional bond fund, particularly the strategic bond funds. Great. Well, I mean, on the subject of income, a lot of investors have been, been piling into the UK equity income sector. Uh, and that seems to be a trend that just keeps going and going. And, um, you know, equities obviously will help your capital grow, but they also can deliver decent income in the form of dividends. And um, one of the great masters of equity income investing is um, well-known fund manager Neil Woodford. 
Now, he left Invesco Perpetual to launch his own fund, um, which um, retail investors could start investing in just over a year ago. And in its first year, this fund, which is called the CF Woodford Equity Income Fund, has uh, has already sprung into pole position in the Investment Association's UK equity income sector. Now, Kate, you've been looking at its performance. How has it how's it done this? Um, yeah, it's, it's done very well. Returned 19.6% between um, its first day of trading on 19th of June and, um, and 4th of June this year. So, yeah, it puts it right at the top. Um, I mean, people are saying that the success is kind of down to a mixture of stock selection and sector positioning. Um, in terms of stock selection, his small cap exposure has actually accounted for 40% of performance, even though small caps only make up 15% of the fund. So clearly chosen some really good ones there. Um, particularly small caps generally have lost money over that period. Um, and he's also had a very small exposure to oil and gas and is kind of overweight healthcare. He's got a 34% weighting to healthcare compared to the next highest, which is um, Mighton, and that's just over 17%. So obviously that's done well for him, and he's got a very strong conviction about that. Um, and according to Hargreaves, Woodford's stock selection has been very good in financials. He doesn't hold any banks, but he's um, taken some really good positions which have performed very well. Okay, well, I'm sure he's he's very pleased at being top of his sector. (laughs) Tim, are you impressed by the the performance of this fund? Um, You have to be, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, he's had a fantastic um, year. I mean, the the whole sector actually has had a good year. Um, If you you compare the sector with the FTSE 100, I mean, nearly all of the funds in the sector have beaten the FTSE by quite some margin. And a lot of the funds have delivered double-digit returns. But, yeah, I mean, Woodford is right up there at the top. And Now, I think he's had some advantages um, because when you start a new fund, you've got cash coming in. And actually, if you look back at what was happening in the market shortly after he launched, the market fell quite sharply. Um, It was off sort of by early August, so it was off by something like 4%. By October, it was off by 10%. And that obviously gave him a great opportunity as money came in to buy the stocks he really, really liked. Um, and then when it recovers, of course, um, he's been buying these stocks more cheaply than perhaps a lot of his uh, rivals have been able to do because they're already invested. Um, so that was an advantage he had. And uh, again, as Kate pointed out, he's done very well on the small caps. One in particular is Allied Mines, which has gone up something like 200%. Um, and he bought that, I think, shortly after it was IPO'd, which, again, was shortly after the fund was launched. Now, I know there's a lot of investors out there who watch what he does, so he probably has people following him, um, and that obviously helps uh, push prices up. I mean, but, yeah, a brilliant year. Would you stick with um, Neil Woodford's fund? I mean, it's got very big now, hasn't it? It's, um and then people often say, you know, big funds are less nimble and, and there are some risks attached to it. I mean, what would you do? <laughs> I think um, <laughs> I think the results this year might fly in the face of that argument. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, he, we all know he's been around for many, many years. He's been very, very successful. Absolutely, um, I would stick with it. Um, it's a fund we use in our portfolios for clients. I don't... I don't expect the next um, next year to be quite as good as, as this year because I do think, um, as, as said, with a, a new launch, he had some uh, 
some advantages, which is fine. Um, but yeah, no, a, a very, very good fund. Well, moving from income to growth, um, investors looking for growth are often advised to move overseas, to diversify their portfolios overseas. And many, we see many, many investors who have emerging markets funds in their portfolios. Um, now, Chinese domestic A shares have been very much in focus over the past um, few months. This is mainly because foreign investors can now access them. And, and therefore, we've seen the number of exchange-traded funds, which are passive in investments, uh, which track the performance of A-shares, growing in number. Now, Kate, you've been looking at um, exchange-traded funds in, that um, track A-shares. Um, what do you think investors need to consider before investing? Um, yeah, well, there, there are quite a few things to consider. It's quite an interesting area because... Um, there's kind of no no one clear winner here. There's no one ETF that you would say, oh, definitely that one. Um, I mean, I think you can break it down into, into three things, really. You need to think about performance, headline fees, and also the trading costs of these, which can be much higher than other similar ETFs. Um, so firstly, there have been a lot of new launches of ETFs um, in this area because, I mean, China's been an amazing growth story, and every index here has gone up by kind of around 50% for the past you know, year and a half. So it's, it has been a great place to be invested. But every index is very different. Um, so you have some with kind of 500 constituents, some with 300, and different kind of company sizes in there. So firstly, you know, you need to choose the index that you, you, know, that you think is the right one for you. And then in terms of fees, these have typically been quite high um, because it's a hard area to get access to. It's it's harder to hold the stocks. It's not like just kind of buying FTSE stocks, which which is much easier. Um, but because of the increased competition, actually, these have been coming down. So um, they used to the kind of ongoing charges were over one percent. But um, iShares recently launched its first product in this area, which. Um, maybe uh was um was a bit of a kicker for Deutsche Bank to to reduce the cost of its own to um well, com- competition is always good yeah. in this market isn't it no, for definitely. investors um tim what do you think are the risks of investing in china a shares um i think the the risks are obviously um as ever in the underlying companies and in the the economic outlook now okay um, you know there's a lot of discussion that the the economic outlook, the GDP forecast, which is what people focus on, and the performance of the market aren't tied together. Um, but, you know, the health of the economy is important. However, you know, China is a very, very big economy. There's a lot of opportunities there. And I think the A-share market is exciting. Uh, you know, it was closed to investors effectively for a very long time. They've gradually liberalized um, and allowed access, and that is now going further. We've had this um, link they put in place between Hong Kong and, uh, and the Chinese exchanges, which has enabled access to A-shares. So, um, yes, I think it's a, it's a welcome development. I think there's quite a lot of pent-up demand. I don't know that that's necessarily going to um, rush in. Um, I think it uh, may take its time, and there are still uh, restrictions on uh, how much can be held in A-shares. So um, my, my guess is that the, the underlying demand will be very supportive of the market over the next few years. So, I mean, it, it's definitely something to consider for your portfolio. But um, 
Emerging markets, really, I mean, we see a lot of those in, in readers' portfolios. And what we don't see a lot of is the US, which is actually, you know, one of the, it's the biggest market. It's, um, you know, it, it's very innovative in the US smaller companies. And, and really, UK investors probably need to focus on upping their US um, uh, element of their portfolio rather than looking for racier emerging markets exposure. Um, one of the funds that we're looking at in this, this week's magazine um, is um, J.P. Morgan U.S. Smaller Companies Investment Trust. Now, it's a member of the Investors Chronicle's top 100 funds, and it has been making strong returns. Deputy Personal Finance Editor Leonora Walters has been looking at this trust. Leonora, is it still a good option for investors yeah, well, it's certainly been um, doing well. I think a problem with um, US funds among the large cap sector is that they don't outperform the benchmark. But um, this investment trust, JP Morgan, U.S. smaller uh, companies, certainly has. Um, it's beaten the Russell 2000 index over one, three and five years in terms of net, net asset value um, and three and five years in terms of its share price. So you certainly can get outperformance of this fund. And they are, you know, very strong absolute returns as well, good positive numbers. Um, the uh, other arguments for investing in um, U.S. smaller companies, according to the manager who I met recently, um, he says um, they actually give you, in a way, better U.S. exposure than the large caps. Because the large caps, like a, you know, like like in this country, a lot of them are multinationals, whereas. Um, U.S. smaller companies in the Russell 2000 get around 80% of their revenues domestically. Um, and he also likes the fact that they are quite innovative, serve in market niches, um, and, you know, have got stronger growth potential. So those are the upsides to it, let's say. Um, Tim, how much U.S. exposure do you think investors should have in their portfolios? Um yeah, it's an interesting one because clearly, you know, the U.S. market dominates um, global markets, and yet most U.K. investors um, on that basis are underweight, um, and that's because we have a home bias, and, and we're the same when we build portfolios of clients. But typically, we would be looking at somewhere between probably 15 and 20 percent exposure to the U.S. for a growth-orientated uh, client, something we, of that order. Yeah. Would you go for the large large multinationals that Leonor was mentioning or, or a small cap fund like the one we've looked at in the magazine? Or would you mix it up? I mean, Yeah, we, we mix it up. Um, I think, as Leonora points out, you know, the, the smaller companies tend to be focused more on the U.S. domestic economy, um, whereas you've got the large names. I mean, Apple is the obvious one. Um, I mean, that's a fantastic company. So the U.S. is home to some of the world's you know, greatest companies, and I think having exposure to them is no bad thing. But yes, the small companies can also give you that extra boost to performance. Um, and this trust, I mean, you know, the J.P. Morgan U.S. Smaller Companies Trust, has been very good. Um, and it's looking quite good value at the minute because it's, it's sold off a little bit. Okay, so that's definitely one to have a look at. Well, thank you very much to my special guests, Alan Hyam of Fidelity Worldwide Investment and Tim Cockrell of Rowan Dartington, and to Leonora Walters and to Kate Bealey of the Investors Chronicle. You can read more about Neil Woodford's fund, Absolute Return Bond Funds, 
and China A shares ETFs in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.